0: Well, Church, may I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, as we continue our study through this little book, we're going to be in chapter 5 today, just a handful of verses for us to consider, and yet they're incredibly beautiful and powerful verses, and I trust God would want to speak to us and in us and through us. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you'll find that on page 988 in the Pew Bible in front of you, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to Take that Pew Bible as our gift to you. Take that home and that could be your very own copy of God's Word. And so here we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Hear now the Word of God. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Our Father, we are thankful now for this opportunity to consider your word, and we pray that we would rejoice, really, in in what is the center of our faith, the heart of Christianity displayed so beautifully in these handful of verses. And so help us to be reminded of what we hold dear, And help it to change us and propel us forward, even as the the word encourages us. Help us to take the truths we consider today, that we might encourage one another and build one another up as a faith family here. And so do a great work in our midst, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I hope you'll forgive me for uh, repeating a story that I shared with you last summer of England's late 19th century monarch, Queen Victoria, who once attended worship, a worship service in St. Paul's Cathedral. In response to that message, she was very convicted by the sermon, and she called the court chaplain, and she asked him this question. Can one be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? And we have certainty that we shall live forever. In other words, the answer from her court chaplain is, was, quote, There was no way one could be absolutely certain. End quote. Of course, many would agree with him. He's not alone in this belief. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has officially declared, quote, No one can know with a certainty of faith that he has obtained the grace of God. End quote. Many Protestants would concur arguing that we can lose our salvation at any time, and so there is really no certainty. I wonder, what about you? How would you answer that question? Is there a way in which we could be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? Yes. Can we know that? Yes. Well, someone says yes. Okay. Well, Queen Victoria's conversation was actually um, uh, carried along in the court news. And it came to the attention of a faithful pastor by the name of John Townsend, who was very troubled by the counsel that this chaplain had provided to his queen. And so he prayed and sent this letter to Queen Victoria, in which he wrote, "...to Her Gracious Majesty, our Beloved Queen Victoria, from one of your most humble subjects." with trembling hands but heart-filled love, and because I know that we can be absolutely sure now for our eternal life in the home that Jesus went to prepare, may I ask your most gracious majesty to read the following passage of scripture, John chapter 3 and verse 16, Romans chapter 9 verses 9 through 10. I sign myself your servant for Jesus' sake, John Townsend. Two weeks later, he received the following letter in the post, reading, To John Townsend, I have carefully and prayerfully read the portions of Scripture referred to. I now believe in the finished work of Christ for me, and trust by God's grace to meet you one day in that place he has prepared for us in heaven, Victoria." See, after Her Majesty discovered that salvation can be found in Christ alone, and it is a salvation in which we can be assured of, uh, assured in the finished work of Her Majesty's King, the Lord Jesus Christ, she not only had certainty in her heart, she actually became quite an evangelist for the gospel. She carried a little booklet with her, which she often gave away, which presented the story of salvation and how it can be found in Jesus alone and not through our good works and righteousness. The title of the book, Safety, Certainty, and Enjoyment. And if you will, it will be the outline for our sermon this morning. In fact, I think it beautifully captures what Paul is trying to communicate to this Thessalonian church. Safety, certainty, and enjoyment. Of course, we've been studying this book throughout the fall. And in recent uh, Sundays, we've been considering the return of Christ in the final days the Bible talks about. I hope you understand that how you view the end of things really depends on how you view its beginning. How did everything start will, be, will de- really determine uh, what you understand about life and how it comes to an end. And it's here, as we've been studying the end, that we find one of the great distinctions that Christianity presents with the secular world. Why are we here? Where are we going? What difference does it make? The world and Christianity have very different answers to those questions. The modern mind teaches us, as you have heard, that we exist by chance that we are a product of time and chance, and that we therefore eke out our existence, and then we die and go back to the earth. And that's really what life is about. Now, you might be tempted to think, why would anybody want to believe that? Well, it might be perhaps we'd rather not have to encounter one day a holy God. And so let's get rid of that God. And yet, once we're rid of God, what are we left with? Right, what do we have? All you have is you're an accident, I'm an accident... There is no meaning in life. We're born, we live, and we die. I might suggest to you a different understanding of reality. Uh, That God actually started history, and that God acts in history, and that God is going to draw history to a close, as we have seen here, 1 Thessalonians 5, a close on what Paul refers to, in fact, Scripture refers to repeatedly as the great day of the Lord, when the Messiah King returns in judgment. And in light of this, Paul is asking this question, how will we endure that great day as we stand before a holy God? How will we endure this great day of trouble as the Bible presents it? Or a secondary, a corollary question might be, how will we endure any troubling day? How do do we endure any kinds of trials? How do we stand before a holy God and how do we endure standing before the doctor when he says, hey, let's do a biopsy on this? How do we stand before a boss who says, hey, we're downsizing, you're going to have to find a new job? How do we stand before a spouse who says, you know, I don't love you anymore, I'm leaving? And I think these verses before us are incredibly helpful, not only in how we might face the end, but how we might live this life with confidence and trust in the Lord. And so I hope that you would give your heart's attention to it. I've been praying it all week. In fact, a month ago I wrote this sermon, and I'm excited to be able to declare these truths. And I hope that you'll be able to place them deep within you, that you might even be able to preach them to others. That we might become so familiar with what Paul is saying that when we get that dreaded phone call in the middle of the night, and we rush over, what do we say to them? I mean, we want to cry with them, certainly. We want to hug them, certainly. We we want to just, just be there and be silent with them. There is no doubt. But there comes a time when we need to speak, when we need to open our mouths. What will you say? What will you give them at that time? Do you have truth so rooted in your heart that when death comes or threatens when trial comes, do you have passages hidden away that are these go-to truths that you might share with one another? I think that's what these verses are here for. For what does he say in verse 11? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up in light of this. Therefore, I want you to take these truths and I want you, church, to be an encouragement to other people to support them. It is Pastor John Piper who says, these precious, powerful, solid, unshakable word of hope in verses nine through 10 is not just for you. This is God's go-to word to preach yourself in crisis and then to deliver them to others. And so as we consider everything this morning, I pray that these would not only be a help to you, that these verses might be used by you to help others as we consider, first of all, safety, safety. What does he say there in verse 9? For God has not destined us for wrath. Amen, indeed. Right? We are not destined for wrath. Now, why? You, I, why are we not destined for wrath? I think you could have a couple options here, can't you? Option number one is saying, well, we're not destined for wrath because there is no wrath. Right? And... and uh, no, no one's destined for wrath because God's not that kind of God and God doesn't get angry. So we don't need to worry about anything. So listen, hey, let's not worry about wrath. Uh, we're not destined for that. So he, he might be saying that. Or option number two, he might be saying there is wrath. You were once destined for it, but no longer. Right? So ma- many people argue for option one. Yeah, we're not destined for wrath because it doesn't exist. There is no divine wrath. In fact, today, in particular, such ideas of divine wrath are silly. Uh, they're, They're embarrassing to say that God has wrath. The gods we worship today, they don't speak of judgment. Right? They're, they're very permissive. They really have no moral compass. They exist to soothe us. They exist to make all our dreams come true. And all the religious bestsellers tell us, listen, uh, you, you, God is a God of moral indifference. He has no wrath, and he's just there to be a positive and encouraging force in your life. Right? And sometimes Christians believe this as well. I, I, I remember um, a number of years ago, about 10 years ago, attending a, a, a meeting of Baptist pastors, and, and three Southern Baptist pastors uh, got up and sang Uh, uh, The song In Christ Alone, a little trio. And they got to the line, as you are familiar with this song, I trust, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's what we sing, don't we? And and yet when they got to that point, it's one of my favorite points uh, in the song, they sang instead, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Of course, that's true. Right? We wouldn't deny that. The cross certainly magnifies the love of God, but only do, I would suggest only does so because it takes away God's wrath. I, and so I said, I wonder what, what motivated the change. In fact, I went up and asked him. I said, well, why did you change the song? And these three Baptist pastors who pastored five, ten miles away from me, all, all looked at me and said, well, we don't believe God has wrath. There's no wrath. Right? And so this is just not what the world is teaching. This is what tens of thousands of our churches are teaching, that that. That there is no wrath to be afraid of. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And We're certainly delighted that you're here and you're welcome anytime. we love for you to come. But maybe this is what you've concluded as well. That God has, there is no wrath because God, if he exists at all, well, he's not that kind of God. The question I would ask, if that's the conclusion we come to, is what do we do with the Bible? Because the Bible continually tells us that wrath is coming. For instance, does Paul not say in Romans 2, in verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. They said, well, that's Paul. You know, Paul sometimes gets angry and, and, and all the rest. Well, I think he might have learned it from Jesus. For Jesus himself says in John 3, in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, Scripture tells us that God's wrath is coming. And that it, 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 at one time, Christian, you realize, before you came to Christ, before you yielded your life and faith to Jesus and repentance, the wrath was coming on you. You understand that? In fact, the Bible says that we were one time objects of God's wrath. Ephesians 2 and verse 3. We once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and by nature... You know what it is? Children... Of wrath. What an extraordinary statement that who I was outside of Christ, according to Scripture, was that my very nature meant I was a child of God's wrath. You see, our chief problem outside of Christ is that there's a holy God who is angry at sin and sinners. Well, we've broken his laws, we've belittled his glory, we've neglected his fellowship, we rejected his right and authority to lead us. And I would suggest the Bible teaches, if God is good, we should expect judgment on sinners. Wrath is coming. But, but, we can be saved from it. Is that not what he says there in verse nine? Should this not let your heart soar in light of these truths that God has not destined us for wrath, right? In fact, you, you look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter one, remember that they made this radical transition And when they place their faith in God, look what he says there at the second half of verse 9 of chapter 1. When he says that you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. Right? You, you, you never never forget the trouble from which we are saved, Christian. Because if you forget the trouble from which we are saved, you'll never understand salvation. You'll never appreciate what he has done in your life. It'd be like if you, you go home tonight and you, you go to sleep this evening at 2 a.m. There's a knock on the door. There's pounding on the door. And you go downstairs and you open the door and there's flashing lights in your front yard. And there's a whole crew of firemen. that are standing at your threshold. And they say, we're here to save you. We're here to save you. And you might be tempted to say, save me from what? What are you talking about? I was sound asleep. You woke up, the whole family, the dog's barking. You got the wrong house, buddy. Go go somewhere else. Go away. I want to go back to sleep. And the fireman looks at you and says, my friend, can't you smell the smoke? Can't you feel the heat? Don't you see your house is on fire? And when you turn and see the fiery furnace behind you, would you not then say to him, save me? save me. See, if we forget from which we have been saved, what do we have left? If we remove my Christian brothers and sisters with all the pressure in the world to tell us to stop talking about God's wrath, we take that out of our message. What do we have left? What do we have left? Hey, I think you should try Jesus. He's a really good guy, right? Right? I mean, he's, a, he's encouraging, and he might add some peace in your life, and he, he'd be a really good friend, and he's good to help you out of jams. Why don't you try, Jesus? And what do they say? Thank you very much. I got enough friends. Now, I'm good. Right? That's not the message. The Bible tells us something very differently, that you and I were in deep trouble, that the house is on fire, but Jesus has come to save us. And I think, in fact, the reason that some of you might be here this morning is that you might hear this despite what you've heard in this world, that the scripture might speak to you, that the house is on fire. And in love, God wants to save you from wrath. In fact, Christians, I think these truths should affect how you live. I think they should affect you, how you, how you face the trouble of this world. I think these truths ought to impact you, how you deal with angry emails and broken appliances and traffic jams and biopsies and job loss. I mean, just just let this passage sit in your heart. I mean, put your name in there, right? For God, Stephen Karn, listen, for God has not destined you for wrath, right? Will you put your name there, right? God's saying to you, I'm not, I'm not, you're not headed for wrath. And whatever you're facing, Whatever you're facing may be painful and hard and scary and uncertain, and it may be the biggest trouble in your life that you have ever encountered, but let God say to you, it is not wrath. You'll never face it if you are in Christ no matter what trouble you have, this is not God's anger at you. This is not God's wrath at you. You will get hardship in this life. It may be refining. It may be discipline. It may be something else entirely, but it is not wrath for God has not destined you for wrath. We have been saved. We are, we are destined not for wrath, but to what? Obtain, what does he say? Obtain salvation. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, not only is this true, you can be certain of it. We not only have safety, we have certainty. And I think this is what makes this passage so encouraging. Right, uh, that, that we have here in the moment of chaos and crisis in our life, we can be certain of this for one, what God the Father has done, and two, we can be certain because of what Jesus the Son has done. Notice what he says there in verse 9 God has not, and now here's the key word, destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Not because God has, has declared you might escape wrath, that, that you might be saved. That you might have a happy future. He says you have been destined for this. Maybe your translation says you have been appointed for this. Others say that you have been chosen not for wrath. That this decision is by God's. It is written down in heaven. It is fixed. It is set. It is unchangeable that God has made this decision. What is your destiny? You have been destined not for wrath. And God has declared that. In fact, this is how this letter began. Look back in chapter 1 and verse 4, if you will. For he says here, does he not, these great and encouraging words of certainty and assurance. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Chosen you. Literally, the Greek elected you. You, God has chosen you, and he has chosen you for what? Not to face wrath, but he has chosen you to be his own. Just as the Bible says in Acts chapter 13, the Gentiles began rejoicing in the word of God, and as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. Those who were appointed, chosen, those who were destined for eternal life, they believed it. And this is true of the Thessalonians, and it's true of all believers, that you have an appointment that you have a destiny. It's done. It's secure. It's decreed. No wrath, only salvation. And that will never change. Now, I know when, when I talk about, when scripture talks about election, predestination, right? We, we get a, some of us get a little uncomfortable, right? And there's a lot of hard questions that we might have. If this is true, well, why, didn't, why, why doesn't God choose everyone? Or, what, is it, what do we do with evangelism and missions? Or how do we reconcile this with the love of God? Those are all good questions. Um, and, and Pastor Josh has answers to them all, okay? okay. You can tell he's not here, but he has them, right? Okay? Some of you are thinking, I don't, I just get, get past the election part of the sermon. Listen to me. I'm going to get past it in a moment. But you and I need to let Scripture say what it says, Despite, despite uncomfortability in our heart. And what it says, I'm just reading it, you have been destined not for wrath, but to obtain salvation. And may I say as a corollary, if scripture never upsets you, if it never contradicts you, if it never th- makes you think, hey, that can't be right, then you're probably not reading it very carefully because if God is always doing what you think is best and God is always agreeing with what what you think, you might be making God in your own image. In fact, one of the mistakes that we might be tempted to make when we think about, okay, God has destined us or appointed us wrath, that I must be pretty special, right? If God has chosen me, well, wow, I must be more than I thought. But let's be clear here that God doesn't destine or appoint because you're special. And someone could give me an amen there, okay? You're not saved because you deserve it or caused it or initiated. God is not responding to some moral improvement in your life. You took no steps towards him, offered no plea for mercy, gave him any stirring worship, and in yourself there is no love for him in your heart. His love for you is not a response to your love for him, but is a response to his unimaginable goodness in himself. And it's because of that, that you can be so sure and certain. In fact, I love the story that theologian D.A. Carson says when he says, picture Charles and Susan walking down a beach hand in hand. They've kicked off their shoes and the wet sand squishes between their toes. Charles turns to Susan and gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes and says, Susan, I love you. He asks, what does he mean? Well, at least he means something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile paralyzes me from 50 yards. Your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. What he most certainly does not mean is, Susan, in spite of the fact that your nose is so large it belongs in cartoons, Your hair is so greasy, it can lubricate a truck. Your knees are so bony, a camel looks elegant. Your personality makes a till of the hun look sweet. But Susan, I love you. So now God, he continues, comes to us through his word and says, I love you. What does he mean? Does he mean something like, you mean everything to me? I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. When he says he loves us, he concludes, does not God rather mean something like this? Listen, morally speaking, your huge nose and greasy hair, your disjointed knees and terribly selfish personality, your sinfulness makes you disgustingly ugly to me, but I love you. Not because you are attractive, but because I have chosen to love you. And if that is true, what assurance of salvation we might have. Because if we think God's love for us is dependent upon our lovable characteristics, that somehow we deserve to be loved, we'll never be secure in it. Because you'll be afraid that one day you'll do something to lessen the cause of God's love for you. You'll feel you'll do something to, un- to undeserve his love. Which you will. This afternoon you will. Right? That, 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 but but, but you'll ne- if, if he loves you, not because of anything in you, but everything in him, you'll never lose it. Because you didn't deserve it in the first place. And therefore you can be certain of it. In fact, I would suggest to you, he loved you at amazing cost, despite ourselves, through his son. So we can be certain, not simply because of what God has decided or, or destined to happen, but we can be certain, secondly, because of the work of the Son. For what does he say there at the end of verse 9? That we might attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does he have to do with it? Well, look what he says in verse 10. Who died for us. You notice that Christ, listen, Christ didn't come to show the way. You understand that? Christ didn't come to offer a helping hand and sage advice. He came to what? He came to die. And not just simply die, but to die for us. The theologians call this, get ready, big word, penal substitutionary atonement. The penal substitutionary atonement. Simply Jesus atoned for us by paying our penalty as our substitute. Our substitute. That's what for us means. That's the language of substitution. Or you could put it in our place. He died in our place. We see this throughout the Bible. Ephesians 5, who gave himself up for us. Galatians 1, who gave himself up for our sins. First Timothy 2, who gave himself up as a ransom for our people, for us, in our place. And so the reason that I am not destined for wrath, but, but to obtain salvation, and you are as well if you are in Christ, because, listen, I, I, I won't face wrath because Jesus was destined for wrath. Do you get that? You're not destined for wrath because Christ was. And he came and in our place took the wrath of God for us. So he says, for us. And, and, and so we can be incredibly certain of our salvation because of what Christ has paid for. It. In fact, the great theologian Karl Barth was once asked, What's the most important word in the Bible? He might think, He might say grace or mercy or God or holiness or glory. You know what he said? He said the Greek word, pair, which in English is three little letters, F-O-R, for. The most important word in the Bible, he said, is for, on behalf of, in place of. We are saved because Jesus received the wrath of God in body and spirit in place of us. That's why we don't trust in our own good works and our own righteousness to be saved. We can't do anything to earn our salvation. We can't save ourselves. We simply need to receive the gift that Christ offers us through dying in our place. In fact, you notice who, who, who dies here. Notice how Paul describes him there at the end of verse 9. Our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Christ. That is the Messiah. He is the Lord. That is, he is Yahweh himself. And therefore, the one who is dying for us is not some man who wasted his life. And then tried to redeem it through some great act of sacrifice. He wasn't some drunkard or gambler or thief or murderer trying to atone for past sins by giving himself up. In fact, the Bible says that this one, Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord Jesus Christ, never sinned. In Hebrews 4, it says, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. First Peter 2, he committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, in him there was no sin. Just think about the purity of the one who died for us. I mean, he never had an unclean thought, a greedy instinct, a covetous desire, an anxious concern, an idolatrous attraction, an envious inclination. And he is the one who died for us. He never had a prideful remark, a quick-tempered word, a backbiting comment, a lying tongue, a gluttonous indulgence, a slothful moment, and he died for us. He, was, he never dishonored his parents. He never manipulated his brothers. He never deceived his neighbors. He was always kind and compassionate, always humble and meek, always humble and just, always selfless and strong. He was the embodiment of wisdom, righteousness, and grace, and he died for us. He stood up to the proud. He warned his enemies. He pointed all men to a holy and forgiving God. He is the only one of billions upon billions of people who walked this earth who loved God with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength and with all his mind all the time and perfectly loved his neighbor for himself for all times. And that's the one who died for us. Well, just think about his ministry. He always had time to care for the needy, teach the earnest, instruct his followers, and pray to his father. And he died for us. He offered compassion to the poor, his love for the lonely, his forgiveness for the sinful, his tears for the mourning, his grace to the prostitutes, his love to the tax collector, his mercy to the traitor dying on the cross. And he died for us. He welcomed the elderly, esteemed children, elevated women, honored the enslaved, sought after Gentiles, accepted the outcast, the reject, the isolated, and the nobody, and he died for us. He healed the sick. He liberated the demonized, he gave sight to the blind, gave strength to the lame, gave words to the mute, touched a leper, made him whole, sent him back to his family. He straightened a woman's back, stretched out a man's hand, and and sent away a woman's 12-year flow of blood, and that's the one who died for us. He comforted a widow's heart by returning her son back to her from the dead, loved his friends by calling their brother out of the tomb, and changed a little, a daddy's life forever as he speaks to the corpse of his baby girl, girl, Talitha Koum, he said, little girl, get up, and the dead girl awoke, and that's the one who died for us. Think about his power. This is the one who walked on water and calmed the storm and fed the thousands, did battle with the devil and won. It is of him whom the father said, this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. He is the one who left the adoring worship of angels for the hateful scorn of men. And that's the one who bore the wrath of God when he died for us. Or lastly, if you will, just put up with me for one more time. Think about his patience. For he was abandoned by his disciples, betrayed by his followers, rejected by his friends, arrested without cause, struck without retaliation, tried without evidence, was spit upon, mocked, Taunted and tortured, flogged and paraded through a street of a screaming mob to the top of the hill where he was stripped naked and nails were driven through his hands and feet as they pinned him to a cross, hoisted him in the sky for all to see. And yet this is the one who only had pity on the enemies around him as he prayed for them. And that's the one who died for us. Please understand that he did all this and 10,000 times more. It was the best life that ever lived, and he gave it up. He gave it up to take the wrath of God on himself for sinners like you and me as he died in our place. You want to have assurance of salvation? Look to the price that was paid to save you, for there could not be greater. It could not be more. That's the one who willingly came, not to point away, not to give us advice as all the other religious leaders do. Do this and go to heaven. Do this and go to heaven. Do this and go to heaven. He's the one who said, I will do everything that needs to be done for you to go to heaven forever as he gives himself for us. And I mentioned you might be here and you're not a Christian and you might be interested. What what do Christians believe? That's the heart of Christianity. That Jesus is not a moral teacher who tells us what we need to do. He is not like Buddha and Muhammad and Joseph Smith and John Travolta and all these guys who have their ideas. Right? This is what you need to do to get to heaven. Jesus did not come to give us good advice that you might follow. He came to offer good news that you might believe. Namely, Jesus died for sinners. That was the purpose of his life. And if you would put your faith in Christ, you would receive that gift. The Bible says that you too would not be destined for wrath, but obtain salvation. Just yield your life. One of those verses that John Townsend wrote to Queen Victoria, Romans 10 and verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? You could be saved right now. You could change your destiny right now by trusting in Christ. And so that we, of course, might escape wrath. That's true, but that's not all. That's not all. He did all this not just to save us from the, from the judgment of God. He did it so that we might enjoy Him forever. Consider thirdly and quickly the enjoyment that we might have with Him. For what does He say in verse 10? Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. He died so that we might live. And not just live, live with Him. In fact, it has been said, the Christian salvation message can be summed up in four words. For us and with him. all right here. He died for us so that we might be with him. Once again, showing us the uniqueness of Christianity. That Christianity alone is the only world religion that offers a personal relationship with God. In fact, such ideas are ridiculed by all the other re- religions. Their are heaven. It has no personal relationship with God. And yet Christianity over and over and over again says that God wants to be with you. Your creator wants to be with you. And our hearts want to be with him. He has done this so that we might live with him. In fact, we might do so whether we die or are asleep, as he puts it there, or whether we live, or are awake, as he mentions, we will always be with him. You'll always be with him. Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you always even to the very end of the age. And then one day we shall stand before him, whether we live or die, Christian. We are with him. And, we, and I think we all have this longing in our heart. I, I wonder why uh, uh, humans have such desire for relationships. I mean, the the greatest purpose in our life is for the people we love. I don't know how you explain that through a secularist evolutionary mindset that I live to, to be in relationship with other people. I think Christianity answers the question why that's in our heart. I think it's a little note that God has left in us. This, this, this dissatisfaction, this desire for to be with somebody else, and namely, it's met in him. I, I, I think he put these little hints in us that sometimes we ask, don't we, in the quietness of our heart, isn't there something more to life than what's just around me? The answer is yes, there is. There's a creator who wants to live with us forever. It's God's kindness to you, meant to draw you to him, that life is more than just living. It's living with the one who made us. We've been made for him. These are questions that cause a young man to pause in the 16th century. Questions posed by Philip De Neri, De Neri is a, a famous Christian who renounced his hereditary honors of being a, a Florentine nobility in the 16th century in Italy and gave himself to the ministry. And he was living in an Italian university town. And this young law student ran up to him and his face just full of delight. And, and he explained to him at great lengths how he has come to this law school and he intends to spare no labor to get through his studies as soon as possible. And Philip, he just patiently waited for this young man to conclude his great plans and his, and his ambitions. And then he said, well, and when you are done with the course of your studies, what do you mean to do? Well, the young man said, then I shall take my doctor's degree. And then, asked Philip, and then I'll catch uh, people's notice by my eloquence, my zeal, my learning, and my acuteness, and I shall gain a great reputation. And then, he repeated, and then, the young man said, why, there can't be any question. I shall be promoted to some high office. Besides, I shall make money and grow rich. And then, he asked, Well, then I shall uh, be comfortably situated, he said, in wealth and dignity. And then, he asked again, and then, and then, well, then I shall die. At this, Daenerys asked him one last time, and then, whereupon the young man made no answer, but cast his head down and went away. For the last and then had like lightning pierced his soul, and he could not get rid of it. What if you get all you've ever dreamed of? All your plans, hopes, and ambitions come true. Is that it? Couldn't there be something more? There is. And it's offered to us in Christ that we might be united, that we might live with the one for whom we have been made, the one who is perfect in every way, including his love for you. In fact, I think these truths, as I mentioned at the beginning, are a great encouragement. And so if I may add one point to Queen Victoria's little book and suggest to you that these truths are given to us, that we might both find encouragement and offer them. Is this not what Paul says there in verse 11? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. See, Paul says, I I want to tell you all this, not just so you know it, so that as you live within community, that you might encourage one another, that you might build each other up. I wonder, uh, could you use some encouragement? Anybody, Anybody like to be encouraged? Anybody like to be built up? Life is hard, isn't it? Some of you I know have had really hard weeks and hard months and hard years. And life is painful and scary and it beats us down. And some of you are even saying in your heart right now, yes, please. I would like some encouragement. I would like to be built up. Well, that's what this whole passage is here for. And by the way, who does the encouraging? Is that the the pastor's job? Is this the job of the elders? Encourage one another. The guy sitting next to you. The lady behind you. The young man in front of you. Encourage one another. When is the last time you have been encouraged by your church? I remember I wrote this sermon about a month ago and I wrote down as I was working on this point the encouragement that I received from the church. In fact, the week I wrote this sermon on Tuesday morning, I met for coffee with one of you. And then Friday morning, I met at 6.30 with another, which I think is a sinful hour, but I did it anyways. Okay? <laughs> I, I, I met, for so, I met on, Wednesday, on Wednesday, I met with another for lunch. On Wednesday night, I met with my community group in my home, and we encouraged one another. That Sunday, because of the baptism of our children, we had about 100 people over at our home. And you know what we did for about two hours? Well, we just really encouraged each other, and we built each other up. That's, I think, what the church to be. Please don't confuse this as the church. Certainly we gather to worship but the church is the people living in community with one another. In fact, when we had everybody over to our house, we also had our unbelieving neighbors over. We love them. They are great friends of ours. We, we think so highly of them. And so we were glad to have them with us at this important time in our life. But as our neighbor was getting ready to leave, she, she spoke to Allegra to say goodbye, and she had tears in her eyes as she struggled with what she had encountered. And I really think what's going on in her life is, is what she's thinking, that this can't be the church, can it? Because doesn't the church just show up on Sunday mornings and meet for an hour or so, and then you rise up and sit down and say some prayers, and then go on and, and repeat it next week? No. No. No, that's not the church. That's what the church does that, right? But the church shares lies with one another. So they might what? Encourage one another. They might build one another up. Right? That's, that's what we're supposed to do. And we're supposed to, we're supposed to do this in each other's lives. You say, okay, I want to I do that. I'll encourage someone. It, it, what he's saying is not after the service you go grab someone you don't really know and say, hey, will you hold on for a second? You stand still. I'm here to encourage you. Right, right. So I got the thirty seconds of building up. you want? You ready for it? Right. No. What he's saying is, listen. You need to get to know each other like a family. You you need to invest your lives in each other that you might support and care and comfort one another. And sometimes when people come to this church, as many of you have come recently, you think, I want to get involved. What can I do? What 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 what, what uh, job do you have available for me? Well, there it is. It's verse eleven. That's the job for you. Okay. It, it, well, you do verse eleven encourage people, build each other up with the truths of the gospel, invite someone out for lunch. That's a crazy idea, isn't it? Right? And that you might go break bread with one another and you could ask them questions like, hey, tell me what Jesus is doing in your life. Or what are you learning from the Lord? Or how are you serving God? And then you get to know them a little bit more, don't you? And then you ask maybe a little bit deeper questions. You might say, hey, tell me how your marriage is. You might say, hey, where are you struggling as a husband? Because we're all, we're all growing here. You, you might even say, what are your wife's greatest needs and how do you intend to meet them? And you come and you begin to speak truth into their lives and you begin to encourage them with what God has given us. This is what we're supposed to do. In fact, you want to know how to use your afternoon well. I don't do this often, but I would encourage you to memorize verse 9 and 10 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. All right, let's start right now. How about that? God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for wrath. Will you say that with me? God has not destined us for wrath. Let's do that one more time. God has not destined us for wrath. Right? You already got it half done. You're already halfway there. And that you'd be ready to use it. You would speak that into your heart when the doctor says, Listen, I'm here with the results of the test. And God would say before he even gets a word out, you would hear, I have not destined you for wrath. Whatever that man's about to say, know this, it is not my wrath, for that has been spent on Christ. And you would use it, in, in, in people's life, when you get the phone call in the middle of the night and you say, I'm so sorry, and my heart breaks for you, and I want to do whatever I can to care for you, and you hug them, and you pray with them, and you just sit there, but there comes a time, and you say, listen, I'm not trying to slap a flower on this. I, this is hard and difficult, and it's going to be for a while, but can we just stand on this foundation that God, whatever this is, it is not the wrath of God. Don't believe that. It's not true. This is hard and confusing and painful, but it is not God's anger. I know it for sure because God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. And that's secure and that's unshakable, and that's written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that will never ever change because Jesus died to secure it. So whether we live or whether we Die, We shall be with him forever. Can we share that with one another? And not just when you're in trouble. I'm telling you, listen, you can come home from work this week. And, and your spouse says, how was work? And you say, listen, I got some amazing news. You might want to sit down for this. I say, really? What is it? Well, it's this. God has not destined us for wrath. Right? But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, because he died for us. And I just want you to know that, and I want to know that. So whatever we face, we might stand upon that foundation, and you might share that with your Christian coworkers this week. Hey, Bob, how was your weekend? It was fantastic. You know what I thought about? I thought that God has not destined us for wrath. You know what that means? And you can begin to talk to your roommates and your classmates and your friends about that. You can offer that to non-believers even. That is a way to escape the wrath of God. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, on behalf of God, because his word declares it, may I share that with you, Hamilton Baptist Church, you who are united to Christ in faith, as we move forward as a church, as a covenant people, as we move forward as individuals into an uncertain future, this we can know for sure. Whatever tomorrow brings, it's not the wrath of God. For we are not appointed for God's wrath. We are appointed for salvation. Not because we're good. Not because we deserve it. Not because we've earned it. But because Jesus has died to secure it for us. So whether we as a church or individuals prosper or falter, whether we succeed or fail even whether we live or die. Be encouraged, for we shall live with him forever. Our Father, we are so thankful for the truth.